I'm Tom. I'm an alcoholic. Good to be back with you again. When we were here uh, for the last session, we talked about what our problem really was. Notice I say our and we and us, because I'm still an alcoholic. I'm always going to be an alcoholic. But now that I've begun the growth process toward real sobriety, that doesn't frustrate me anymore. And you're going to have the same uh, attitude toward it, I hope. It's enjoyable. It's fun to grow. I don't know if you've tried that, but it really is. Uh, there was a time when people would say things to me like, you're a fine fella, and I would say things like, well, I'm glad you think so, but I don't see why, you know, which is a put-down on yourself, and it's saying, in effect, I'm not lovable, and I'm not worth anything, and why do you say those things? And now my kids will come to me and say, you're the finest father in the whole world, and I'll say, it's the truth, you know, but underneath, I'm thanking God for that, and uh, it's quite a change, and it's happened to me through this program of recovery that I'm going to talk with you about, because we are going to talk about the solution to the problem. Now, let's review for just a minute, if you will. We said that the problem, basically, in the words of one psychiatrist, was that the ego was not submitted to anything or anyone higher than itself. And again, these are hard facts, okay? And another psychiatrist in those long words talked about the narcissistic egocentric core dominated by feelings of omnipotence. And if you want me to break that down to you, it's like inside of me, I've got a little baby sitting in a high chair, Okay? And the baby's beating on the high chair with a spoon, saying, do it, and do it now, and do it my way. Now, do you understand what a narcissistic egocentric is? Use the words I, me, my, and mine, almost exclusively, without recognizing it, without knowing that I am that way. And the other person who said that we assume that we have power that we do not have, and we get sick. And in the terms I showed you last hour, the ego, whose regular job is to be manager of the mental company, and mind you, I am not talking about annihilating or getting rid of the ego. I've got one. You've got one. We're always going to have one. It's necessary. What I'm talking about is an ego, a manager, that is acting like it is chairman of the board, okay, that is inflated bigger than it ought to be. Now, I'm a very simple person, and I have a complicated disease, and my tendency is to complicate that disease. I complicated it for years, and maybe you have too. If the problem, though, is ego inflation. It seems to me that at least one possible solution would be ego deflation. Bringing my ego down to size so that I could relate to you on an even keel, on an even level. And I'm the kind of person who had to feel superior to you before I felt equal. You ever feel that way? I had to feel that I was superior to you. I had to be in control before I was comfortable in any situation. I don't know why. I'm not that smart. I just know that. And deflation of the ego means getting down where it's you and me and we're kind of on a horizontal, good, equal relationship. Okay? Deflating the ego. Now, some pretty smart men have told us that the ego is deflated only through a spiritual experience. One of those was Carl Jung, J-U-N-G, the psychiatrist, a brilliant man, a humble man, and a good one. If you've never read his work, please do. What a beautiful human being. And what Jung said was that when he was talking to one alcoholic, uh, uh, you're hopeless, absolutely hopeless, unless you can have what I call a vital spiritual experience. And he said they're in the nature of huge emotional and moral rearrangements and displacements, you know. And the set of motives and values that used to dominate your life are suddenly cast out and a completely new set of motives replaces them. Dr. William Silkworth, another psychiatrist, said that he thought alcoholism was 100% hopeless, drug addiction 100% hopeless, 
unless there was a 100% spiritual change in the person. Okay? Now, these are psychiatrists. Okay? Others told us, among the great spiritual teachers, you must be born again. Without preaching to you. You must start all over again. And the Greek word for what he was talking about is metanoeo. And it means like, hey, the light's going on. I can see where I've been going. I don't believe I want to go there anymore. I think I'll change my mind. I think I'll change my attitude. I think I'll turn around and go the other way. That's all rebirth is. And in spiritual terms, rebirth means a turning. In scientific terms, it means a paradigm shift. They have to put big words on everything. I don't understand that either, but that's what it is if you're scientifically oriented. It's a change in your thinking, your attitude, and therefore your behavior. Rebirth. Starting all over again is the solution. Now, the minute we start talking about spiritual things, we get confused, don't we? One thing we get confused about is that science has never accepted spiritual things. You know, I can sit down and talk to some doctors and some research people that I know, and they say, Tom, you must be an awful strong person to have stayed sober as long as you haven't. I said, no, I'm not strong. As a matter of fact, I got well when I recognized how weak I was. And they say, well, how did you stay sober? And I say, the grace of God, and you ought to see them. And the looks I get from them, they don't understand that. And if I go on and say, you know, I died. The old me died, and I started all over again. Boy, you really blow their minds, man. But that's really what happened. I'm me, but I'm not me. you understand that? Same equipment, but I'm not the same. Something dramatic has happened. Something which is beyond scientific comprehension, you see. Because science has its own gods. Measurement. If you can't measure it, it doesn't exist. Okay? That's one of their idols. They don't admit to that yet. Okay? And if it doesn't fit into natural law, it can't be true. Well, each of us who hasn't had a drink or a drug today is defying natural law. Because an alcoholic's supposed to be drinking, am I right? By definition. And a drug addict's supposed to be using by definition, Benny. But we're not. We don't fit their neat little package. And for 200 years, they haven't mentioned God, you know, at all. Because he doesn't fit into that nice little package either. I'm not putting them down. That's is a marvel. God, they brought us a long way, you know. They brought us to the point where we blow ourselves off the face of the earth, but we can't even define the human mind. We know all in the world there is to know about outer space, and we know nothing about our inner space. And inside me is a universe more complex than that one out there. And I submit to you that the biggest problems of our day are problems of inner space. Chronic anxiety, chronic depression, alcoholism, drug addiction, cancer. Inner space problems. So we can do all these things, and we can't even tell the basic psychological differences between a man and a woman. And we stay away from the spiritual. And if you want to look at how absurd it's gotten, you see, science has taken and divided and categorized and pigeonholed everything. You know, you go to a doctor now, you go to a series of doctors, don't you? Something's wrong with your foot, you go to a podiatrist. Something's wrong with a bone, you go to an orthopedist. Okay? You need front end alignment, you go to a urologist or gynecologist. Rear end job, proctologist. Okay? It's like you're a whole bunch of pieces, none of which fit together. You ever notice that? I'm sorry. But I'm in this field for wholeness. Wholeness. And wholeness is 
Science talks to us about uniqueness, separation, differences, isolation. The spiritual teachers talk to us about together relationships and our saints. They even say things like, we're brothers and sisters. Ain't that true? But on the other side, we get confused. We're confused because of what science, you know, has put into our minds. And on the other side, our religions confuse us sometimes. Because when you mention the word spiritual, some of us want to get on our tricycles and ride off across clouds looking for God. Don't we? How many times have you heard an alcoholic or a drug addict say, well, if God's in this deal, I'm going back to church and everything will be fixed. Well, I'm sorry. I went back to church so many times to make your head swim. I burn up the aisle in the Baptist church. Every time they sung just as I am, I almost persuaded. I was almost persuaded. And you see, I wanted God to fix me, Ginger, right now. But you know what I didn't want? I didn't want anything to do with those people in that church. It was me and God, thank you, let them stay out. Think about that for a minute. My problem never was with God. My problem was with you. I didn't like you. I didn't trust you. You hurt me. So I want you to know, when I'm talking spiritual, I am talking horizontal relationships. I am talking what goes on between you and me, Kenneth, horizontal. And I'm not out in left field on this, folks, because the greatest spiritual teachers have told us, have they not, if there's nothing going on horizontally, there never will be anything going on vertically. Am I lying to you? First things first, as they say in AA, first get right here, and then you don't have to go looking anywhere. It just comes. So the spiritual doesn't deal with just God. It deals with you. And it's incomplete. Unless it includes other people. Relationships were my problem. I couldn't have a good equal relationship. In any relationship, I either had to dominate you or depend on you. And if you look at it for what it is, depending too much on somebody is a form of domination, isn't it? Because you get all their time and attention. I loved it, for instance, when I was in the psycho ward. I never wanted to leave because I was the center of attention. You sit in there and you save and there's a guy watching you. And I used to love to just move that razor real fast and watch him jump off that stool. That's complete control, folks. And all you had to do was look a little bad and the nurse come running over and pop you in the butt with a needle and that's what you wanted in the first place. And I had the total of attention of a psychiatrist who recorded me for posterity. You know, man, that's an egocentric paradise. I loved it. I said it like it is. I believe in that. Okay. So spiritual is here. Any of you reading in mythology? You ever read any? It's beautiful. It's simple. They've got a myth to explain almost everything. And I love it. I really do. One of the basic myths that you will read there's a myth that says, when we got here, we were all in one piece. Each of us, Benny, was a total, complete, going concern in and of ourselves. We didn't need anybody else. And the gods got worried about that, according to mythology, and said, well, if we leave them like that, they're going to be like us. And we better correct that situation. And you know they did? They corrected it by splitting us in half. Right, Ginger? Read any creation story in any great religion. Genesis, Gilgamesh, Epic, any of them. And there's always a split. Male and female created he them. So when we got here, Benny, we were whole. And then all of a sudden, we were split. Incomplete. And one of the deepest longings of every human being, maybe the deepest, maybe you've never thought about this before, John, 
is to be whole again. Every one of us has a thirst, Kenneth, to be whole again. Each of us has a thirst for union with other human beings. That's a way of being whole, and it's called sexuality. And each of us has a thirst for wholeness, union with a higher power, and that's called spirituality. And they're just like that. And it's in us all. And all of our other needs come out of that. We need to be whole. The effect of alcohol and drugs is this. Stay with me. They take me from loneliness and isolation to wholeness. Did you feel complete when you were just right? With that booze and with those drugs? Sure you did. Yeah? There's a poet, A.E. Hausman, one of my favorite poets, English poet. And Hausman was a drunk, and I know that, you know. He wrote a poem one time. He said, uh, Ale, man, ale's the stuff to drink for fellows whom it hurts to think. Look into the pewter pot and see the world as the world is not. Isn't that something? And faith is pleasant till it is past. The mischief is it will not last. Oh, I have been to Ludlow Fair and left my necktie God knows where and carried to my home or near pints and quarts of Ludlow beer. And then the world seemed none too bad, and I myself a sterling lad, and down in lovely muck I've lain, happy till I woke again. Then I saw the morning sky. I hold the tale was all a lie. The world, it was the old world yet, and I was I, and my clothes were wet, and nothing now remained to do but begin the game anew. See why I know he was a drunk? So alcohol and drugs take us there. But you know what happens, Ginger, is we come right back. And when we come back, we're deeper in isolation than we ever were before. So although alcohol and drugs seem to make us whole, put us all in one piece, create relationships, what we always wanted, give us security, take away the fear, take away the anger, they won't last. As a matter of fact, they create more. And that's how you Do you ever think of drinking and drugging as a spiritual experience? Huh? That's what it is, Herb. It's a spiritual experience. Does it surprise you that some religions use a lot of drugs? Huh? To produce spiritual experience? Does it surprise you that what you've always been after was a spiritual experience, huh? You know what Carl Jung said? He said, to me, the alcoholic's craving for alcohol is the equivalent, on a low level, of our natural thirst for wholeness, for union with God. And he went on to say, it is no accident to me that the Latin name for alcohol is spiritus, spirit. It surprises you. It really zings you when you first think about it. Yeah, it's a spiritual experience, second to none. Alcohol did for me what I'd always been told in the Baptist church God was supposed to do. Did drugs and alcohol do that for you? And they did it right now. And they did it every time. There was no waiting. But they killed me. Spiritual experience. So we're not new. Another thing is that... <laughs> Science is now validating a lot of what the spiritual teachers have taught us. Have you noticed that? Science has studied so far they've run head on into mystery. 
Throw it on into paradox, Benny. You can't understand it anymore. Robert Oppenheimer, great, great scientist, helped create that bomb that's going to blow us off the face of the earth, and is now sorry for it. Answer the question when he was asked, if, if, if you ask me if an electron moves, I'll have to say no. And if you ask me if it stays still, I'll have to say no. And if you ask me if its position changes with time, I'll have to say no. But if you ask me if it remains in the same position, I'll have to say no. And the guy said, that doesn't make any sense. He said, no, it doesn't. It's a paradox. He said, where do we find answers to things like that? And Oppenheimer replied, only from the Buddha and Jesus and the other great spiritual teachers will you find answers to paradox. For instance, any of you uh, hear of a scientist named Roger Sperry? Any of you? I'm surprised. Sperry won a Nobel Prize in 1981 for his study of the split brain. And he was working with epileptic people. And he was trying to find some way to keep the seizure from spreading from one side of the brain to the other. And so he cut the connecting cord, the corpus callosum, in between the two sides of the brain, and it stopped the spread. Okay? But he found out something he wasn't looking for. That's so often the case with science. He found out that the left side of our brain and the right side of our brain, and listen to me, think and perceive in entirely different ways. The left side of the brain is logical, objective, rational, intellectual, self-centered, dry, like a computer. Okay? But boy, the right side. The right side is creative, loving, sees things in terms of relationship, is emotional, is nonverbal, folks, doesn't communicate with words, and is wise. He found all that out. Fantastic discovery. Think back when you went to school, which half of your brain was trained? The left side. Logical, rational, objective, lots of mathematics, lots of grammar, lots of algebra. How much time were you given to daydream? How much time was set aside for art and dancing and music? Could you get and dance when you felt like it? I did when I was a kid. Matter of fact, when I went to school, I could do two things real good, walk and talk. My first two messages were sit down and shut up. Okay. That's the reason I daydreamed so much. I had to. It was necessary. Fantastic discovery. Okay. Did you ever hear of a little Chinaman named Lao Tzu? Or a religion referred to as doubt. Okay? You know what Lao Tzu said? 1981, Sperry said these things. 2,600 years before, Lao Tzu said something else. He said, friends, there's two of us. And he said, one part of us is rational, logical, objective, intellectual, unfeeling, communicates verbally, very self-centered, dry, you know? And he said, it's the light side. And by light, he meant we know a lot about it. Okay? And he said, I call that side the yang. And it's male also, he said. But he said, there's another part of it. He said, it's dark. We don't know much about it. It's very emotional. It's very creative. It's very loving. It's very wise. Not intellectual, wise. It's very intelligent. It's very powerful. It's very emotional. It's female. And I call it the yin. You ever hear the yin-yang? What I'm saying is 2,600 years before Sperry won the Nobel Prize for his discovery, Lao Tzu had already discovered it. You, and those of you who are Christians, you remember Jesus talking about the mind and the heart? Huh? Do you begin to understand? There's two of us. And science is validating this now. 
Even Sperry said, I have discovered nothing new. Lao Tzu always knew it. Okay? Another thing, any of you familiar with uh, near-death experiences, what they call NDEs, are you? There's people who are clinically dead and they come back to life. And this has been researched and validated now, okay? And 80% of the people who are brought back have no memory of it. But 20% of them do. And every single one of those 20% tell almost the identical same story about what happened to them. First, they had an out-of-body experience. It was like they were floating on the ceiling, looking down at the doctor working on them. They can tell the doctor everything he did. They can read every machine, and none of them are trained in medicine. And after that, they go through a long tunnel, and it's dark, and it's frightening. And at the end of that long black tunnel, they see this beautiful, warm, loving light. And as they approach the light, the fear leaves. And it's like the light beckons them on. And if they look beyond the light, guess what they see? Green pastures. Friends who have gone on before. And the message the light gives them is, it's not your time. You'll have to go back. And they don't want to. They don't want to. Long black tunnel. Listen to me. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Green pasture. Almost sounds like the 23rd Psalm, doesn't it? Validated. Scientists are now talking about the possibility of some existence after death. That we're in a transformational process. I mean, I've talked about that before. Another thing they're talking about is uh, the possibility of healing taking place. Without medicine. There's a guy at UCLA, David Bressler. He runs a pain clinic. In his pain clinic, he deals with people with chronic pain. Not just plain old pain. Chronic, terrible pain. He uses no drugs. He uses no surgery. You know what he uses? Prayer. Meditation. Guided imagination. With great success. story he tells about a lady who had had double mastectomy and had terrible spreading pains across her chest all the time. She was sent to him. And he asked the lady, please visualize your pain. What does your pain look like to you? She said, you'll think I'm crazy. He said, that's okay. Tell me anyway. She said, it's like a huge elephant sitting on my chest and it's crushing me to death. And he worked with her and he instructed her with her imagination, Ginger, to go to work with the elephant. Three months. No more pain. And he said, what did you do? Listen, it sounds funny, but it's true. She said, I put the elephant on a diet. And he kept reducing in size day by day, visually, imagination, in my mind, until one day he got very thin, he grew ears like Dumbo, and he flew away, and he'd never been back. Another man with chronic lower back pain, he said, what's it like? Like a hot poker sticking in my back. He said, I want you to go on a picnic in your imagination. I want you to have a good picnic, and I want you to visualize yourself in a pasture, and running through the pasture is an icy mountain stream. And he said, when you want to, get up and walk over to the mountain stream and sit down in that icy water. And when the, the icy water hits that hot poker, it's going to shrink it. And when it does, you reach around and pull it out of your back. And he did, and he had no more chronic lower back pain. See, science now knows that our bodies produce their own painkillers. Did you know that? We produce our own tranquilizers, our own sleeping pills, thank you. Morphine doesn't kill pain. It just releases our body's own painkillers. And they have found we can release them through imagination and prayer and meditation. I get high on meditation. Some people get high on running. We understand why now. Makes sense, can't 
You're used to in the medical school, they, they take a bunch over here with migraine headaches and give them Percodan, maybe. And over here, a bunch with migraine headaches and give them sugar pills. Well, some of these would get relief, but some of them would. And you'd have thought the doctors, John, would have said, I ain't give me anything but sugar pills. How in the world do you get relief? But they're too scientific for that. They throw them out of school. You know, they call them, uh, the doctors call people that got relief from sugar pills quacks. Okay? And they call the doctors quacks. And they had the quack-quack controversy. That's what a doctor friend of mine says, you know. But you know, if he had asked, say, Ken got relief, he'd say, Ken, how'd you get relief? I didn't give you anything but sugar pills. You know what Ken might have said? I believed I was going to get relief, and I got relief. Whoa. And Jack comes in to me, and I'm a doctor, and huge growth in his stomach. And I said, Jack, get your affairs in order. You'll be dead in three months. You have cancer. And five years later, I see him. And he's healthy and happy. I've never seen a man in such good health. Now, you would have thought the scientist would have said, what in the world did you do? We need an answer to cancer. But they'd say, no, nah, must have been a wrong diagnosis. I, I looked at the wrong x-ray. In other words, they ignored these things. And if he'd asked Jack, Jack might have said, well, you know that job I had? Making a lot of money that was driving me crazy. I quit it. I always wanted to make furniture. I don't know why. And I'm making furniture. And I'm not making a lot of money, but I sure am happy. And you know that woman I lived with for 27 years and I couldn't stand her? I left her. And I'm living out in the country where I always wanted to live, you know? And I'm really having a good time. I don't want the cancer went away, but not there anymore. You can feel it if you want to. In other words, I just made a radical change in my lifestyle. And I'm healed. See, there is some basis, in spite of all the quackery and chicanery and faith healing, there is some basis for believing that it is, as a matter of fact, a very powerful tool. That we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That we have within us everything that is needed to get well from cancer. Everything. Alcoholism, drug addiction, anything. Not because we're so great, but because of the connection. Do you hear what I'm saying? We are God's kids. No doubt, Ken. We are. Now they're beginning to think about those things. You see, my version of spirituality, to wind that up, is that the horizontal relationship, you and me, and without this, there's no vertical, but if I have this, there is a vertical, and right there in that intersection is the whole meaning of life. Think about it. The horizontal, the vertical, the intersection. That's the whole deal. That's just how simple it really is. What's complicated is how in the world do I get there? That's where I always wanted to be. With the hole in my middle closed. How'd I get there? Please turn your tape. Do not rewind. Turn your tape and continue on slide two. According to William James, spiritual experiences always include two basic elements. If you want to read his book, you can read the book called Varieties of Religious Experience. He studied all kinds of spiritual experiences. He was one scientist that had guts enough to do it. And he found two common elements. And the first element in the spiritual experience is ego deflation at death. How about that, folks? You know what we call hitting bottom? That's ego deflation at death. When you see the truth right in front of you and you can't avoid it any longer, and you know you've had it, that's fine. That's ego deflation at death. And the monkey doesn't speak to you, and the kid in the high chair is quiet because he has nothing to say. 
bottom. And the second element is submission. How about that? Submission to a higher power. Because you sit from somewhere deep in you, said James, that everything's going to be all right. If you can get hooked up with a higher power. Ego deflation is death. I don't know how many of you ever heard of Bill W., one of the co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous. He went through this. When he was in the hospital withdrawing from his last drunk, he said he felt as if he was in the pit of hell. The whole bottom dropped out. His depression deepened unbearably. Bottom. Ego deflation. And then, Ginger, he heard himself cry out, God, if there is a God, please help me. I'll do anything. And he had it. And he had a big one. So it was like he was lifted to the top of the mountain, and a cool breeze, not of air, but of spirit, was surrounding him. And he said to himself, so this is the God of the preachers. And when the experience was over, and he doesn't know how long it lasted, Kenneth, he called the psychiatrist in and said, am I crazy? Am I hallucinating? And you know what the doctor told him? After asking him a lot of questions, no, you're not crazy. I don't know what's happened to you. I've read about these things. I've heard about these things. They're called spiritual experiences. He said, but whatever it is, you don't even look the same as you did a while ago. And you better hold on to it. And that's the way AA got started. The trouble is, too many of us look for that big kind of spiritual experience. And, and most of us have the small kind, you know, the educational variety. It comes slow, and it makes some of us mad, see, because it's too slow. It's like a friend of mine up in Greensboro, North Carolina, they were discussing spiritual experience one night. And he got very worried about it, you know, and he came out of the meeting and he waited for the old man that he, he liked the least in the whole group, but he knew the old guy had the answer, okay? And he said, I'm bothered. Y'all were talking about spiritual experience. When am I going to have mine? And the old guy said, how long have you been sober? He said, four years. He said, you've had it. Think about it. doesn't have to be a Moses thing with a burning bush and a big voice. doesn't have to be a Paul thing where you knocked off the donkey. And made blind, Ginger. It's just a gradual change. And you don't think the same. And you don't even realize it. But your eyes start to show it. The mirror of your soul. There's a turning. Okay? Now, ego deflation at depth, submission to a higher power. Two basic elements. Do you understand that? Right? Now, there are many ways to achieve a spiritual experience. One of those ways is called the Sermon on the Mount. That would be the Christian way. One of those ways is called the Ethical Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. That would be the Jewish way. One of those ways to a spiritual experience is called the Eightfold Middle Path. That would be the Buddhist way. And one of those ways to a spiritual experience and the way which seems to work best for us, and I'm not smart enough to know why, is the Twelve Suggested Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's a way to a spiritual experience. If you don't believe me, read the 12th step sometime. It says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. That's the only one, Ginger. The result of the 12 steps is a spiritual awakening, a spiritual experience. The light goes on. You turn, you change. You're the same, but you're not. And the minute I mention Alcoholics Anonymous to some people, they say, well, that book, that blue book, you know, that was written by a bunch of drunks. What can a bunch of drunks know? I'll tell you something maybe you don't know. Everything in this book was agreed on by the hundred, first hundred members of Alcoholics Anonymous. Everything. And when you can get a hundred drunks to agree on anything, you had better hold on to it. You understand what I'm saying? They all agreed on it. And look at the magic. 
that they said. See, people think somebody stepped down and invented AA. No. It evolved. It evolved from Moses, from Jesus, from Carl Jung, from William Silkworth, from Harry Tebow, from William James, from religion and science. That's the reason we got a program. The first step in that program says, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Chew on that for a minute. We admitted we couldn't drink, and we couldn't quit. We quit assuming we have power that we don't have. We know what the truth is. Alcohol and drugs have me licked. And as much as I try, doesn't seem anything I can do about it. Now, when you admit your power is over something and your life's out of control, you think that might deflate your ego a little bit, Jenny? But see, they weren't done yet, Kenneth. They said, the uh, second step, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves, uh-oh, could restore us to sanity. Remember what the psychiatrist said? The ego's unsubmitted to anything or anyone higher than itself. And all of a sudden, the second step says, we came to believe there's a power greater than us. Who can do what? One thing, one thing. Restore us to sanity. What am I talking about? Restore me to the point where I can recognize what's good for me, do it, what's bad for me, and not do it. Please keep that in mind. Where I can make an agreement with myself and keep it. Where I can say to myself, I'm not going to drink today, and I don't. But the moment that you believe anything is more powerful than you are, be it a group, a thing, a substance, or a god, you deflate the ego. Don't you? And they're not done yet. They just never get done, these old drunks. We made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. I submit to you there is not one ounce of theology in that statement. None. Put your will and your life in the care of any person, anything, any institution. You've deflated your ego. Have you not? Then we get down to the fourth step, and, you know, we talk about all those feelings and memories and thoughts being down here in the basement and blocking you off from the power. You remember that? And you get to the fourth step, and boy, we scream and holler, you know? Why do I have to go back through my life and write all that stuff down with pencil and paper? I have forgot that. I'm going to tell you, you never forget anything. Nothing. And why do I have to do that? I don't want to do that, you know? I used to hate my mother, but I don't now. I used to dislike my father, but I don't dislike him anymore. And I just don't see any sense in doing all that. And the fourth step says, made a searching and filled his personal inventory of ourselves. Moral inventory. Huh? You know what it is? You know why you got to take that inventory? What you do is take a pencil and paper, and you walk down into the basement of your mind, and you list what you find. You list all those feelings, Kenneth, the ones that are eating at you. You list all those memories, Ginger, the ones that are tearing you up. All those thoughts, Jack, that are eating at your guts and causing all that colitis and heartburn and ulcers and heart attacks and brain explosions. Huh? You think those are physical, you better think again. Repressed feelings and memories will devour you. They'll eat you alive. So what do you do? Put them on a piece of paper and walk up out of your basement. And they're not there anymore. Huh? Does that make simple sense to you? And you ask yourself a basic question in inventory. What in the world has been the matter with me? And you go down there and you clean it out and you walk up the steps again. And guess what? 
basically clear, folks. It is clear. And then magic happens. You get out of shower treatment center and you go out to a party somewhere and the drinks come around and they offer you one ginger and you say, no thanks. And you don't take one. My God, you don't take one. And you don't explain, well, you see, I'm an alcoholic. You don't justify. You don't rationalize. You say, no thanks. And you're out on the street and your favorite dealer comes up and says, man, I got some good stuff here. And you say, no thanks, not today. And you don't. And you don't. Something's been added. You made the decision, but now, guess what? You have the power to carry it out. I submit to you, you are not the same anymore. You're not. You've got something that's been missing. You recognize what was bad for you and said no to it, didn't you? Man, the whole world hangs by a thread sometimes. You know that? The whole world hangs by a thread. For an alcoholic and a drug addict, that thread is this. No thanks. You understand that, Benny? No thanks. And you don't take one. Man. And sometimes we get all upset. You know, you get upset out at the treatment center because of all these problems and everything. And you go to bed at night and somebody says, what kind of day did you have? I had a lousy day. I'm going to tell you something. You better think again. If you went through that day without one drink or one pill, it has been a fantastic, incredible day. Don't expect a goody truck. God ain't got one. You're not a clerk in the universal supermarket. And just because you ain't drinking and drugging doesn't mean your life's going to change overnight. I said before, you've got to work at it. And the people who recover and find real sobriety, work at it. But they're not without help. I don't understand God, okay? I don't even care what you call your concept of God. I just know one thing. I'm very aware of one thing. Either I'm a lot smarter than I think I am, or there's something taking good care of me. And I look around me every day. I watch. I've gotten into watching. And I dare you to do it. I dare you to do it. Watch for the rest of the day how many things happen for your good that you don't have anything to do with. And then tell me there's not a higher power. Then deny there's some grace. But don't do it till you watch. God, it's incredible. I'll tell you a story. Jim Emmert, the director of this center, and I were sitting one day talking about getting a guy to work in a school of alcoholism and drugs, and we were talking about a certain guy doing a track on sexuality. And Jim says, we'll have a theme song for that. And I said, well, what would that theme song be? And he said, Mary Magdalene song from Jesus Christ Superstar. I don't know how to love him. I said, that's dynamite, man. Really sounds good. We finished the conversation, went out and got in Jim's car. He turned on the radio. You want to guess what was playing? I don't know how to love him. Gifts, man. Gifts. And they come fast and furious. And we get depressed because we latch on to the bad things. And don't even notice the good thing. Wow. Start watching. I dare you. And then as you go along in the 12 steps, if you look at them very closely, they move you right along this path in very small increments towards that state which is called wholeness. That's exactly what they do. That's exactly what they're designed for. Nothing else. Alcoholics Anonymous is not a program 
designed to help you quit drinking. Quitting drinking is a prerequisite. Same thing is true of NA and drugging. What they're offering you here in this program is a new life. A way of living which does precisely for you what alcohol and drugs did, only better. I'm going to tell you something. I wouldn't trade the worst day that I have now for the very best one that I had when I was drinking and drugging. Inside of me, when the whole world falling down around me, I got a little cassette that goes off. I guess it's a cassette. And it says something like, Hey, dummy, everything's going to be all right. And I believe that, Jenny. And it is. And don't go looking in theology or anywhere else for the high power that you need. Remember, it is closer to you than your next breath. And when you begin, begin to get all that garbage out of your basement, guess what? It begins to express itself. And you're no longer the same. And now that character that I was talking about, the idealist, the perfectionist, the romantic, the sensitive, that's me. But I have a new director. And the same things that were killing me are giving me life. In religious terms, not one cubit has been added to my stature. Just a different director. Still an idealist, still a perfectionist, sensitive. I cry a lot for other people now, more than I do for me. I'm a perfectionist, so I'll never get enough of what I'm getting. Programs built for me. I'm a dreamer. And what I'm dreaming right now is that every one of you, please God, latch into this thing and become what you really are. Because truly, you're wonderfully and fearfully made. And I mean it. You're never going to know it until you find out. I appreciate it.